Prepare today for your transition tomorrow. I'm your host, Paul Pantani, and I want to welcome you to the Transition Drill Podcast. I'll be talking with guests about their career journey and seeking their advice to help those planning a similar change. Welcome back, everyone, and Happy New Year. Joining me in this episode is Austin Alexander. Austin's a Navy veteran who served seven years as a master at arms. While he was on active duty, he began creating and posting videos on YouTube about his life as a sailor. The videos went viral and allowed him to start making decent money, but they also brought resistance from his immediate command staff. So in 2020, Austin chose not to re-enlist and left the Navy. Today, his success continues to grow. All you gotta do is check out his YouTube page. In our conversation, he gives good advice for those wanting to balance a military career and having an active social media presence, as well as giving advice for someone who simply just wants to become a social media content creation professional. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Let's get into episode 20. So let's get this going. Yeah, let's do it. Tell me where you're going to, tell me what you want to talk about. No, seriously, this is my podcast. Wait, no, no, it's your podcast. You, you tell me what you need from me. <laughs> you told me this was a nude photo shoot, so I just showed up and I was like, okay. Well, then why do you still have clothes yeah, on? You're right. I should take them off. <laughs> I usually charge extra for that, people, so. Oh, okay. Well, then yeah. uh, checks in the mail. Okay, good, good. <laughs> so, something I'd like to know about, bench pressing underwater. Yes. How did that come about and what was that like? Bench pressing underwater is a, it was a very inter- interesting concept. At the time, I was training for a four-mile swim in the Hudson. So, I was in the water a lot and my water competen- competency was pretty high. You know, I was doing breath holds. I was doing everything. I said, well, let's work out underwater. And then, probably like two days later, a YouTube group called Dude Perfect posted a video of them bench pressing underwater. And they were using rubber plates and they're like, you know, he got a rep of 405 and I'm thinking 405 rubber plates is probably like 240 pounds underwater. It's not, not actual weight. So I said, the buoyancy of the rubber plates. Exactly. Yeah. So my concept was using steel plates to bench press underwater, how it would affect the weight. Would it be buoyant underwater using, even using steel plates? So that's what we executed. Well, it was, it was definitely interesting to watch. And thank you. The the one thing that I've found from it was the buoyancy of you or people trying to stay on the bench while you're doing it for sure has had the impact. It's uh, it depends on your body fat level because body fat floats a lot more than lean muscle because lean muscle will actually sink. But, um, I think I'm probably 17, 18, 19% body fat. So I was just floating the whole time. So I had to weight myself down with an additional 45 pound plate and we made it happen. How'd the swim go? Swim was brutal. Thought I was going to die about there are two times in there where I thought I was not going to make it, but we did have patrol boats just kind of looking out for us. You know, there's 140 swimmers and like six patrol boats. Is that the memorial swim that they do for the military? Yes, it is. It's a Navy SEAL uh, GI Go Fund swim, Navy SEAL swim. They, they have it every year. This is their third year running. And I got the invite probably sometime in March, but I didn't really take it seriously because I was going, I was, you know, adapting to life outside of the military, which is very hard, still adapting to it. And I didn't take it seriously. But as the time came, I hit up my friend, Ken. I said, Ken, will you swim with me? You know, Ken and I, we're not swimmers. We're not, we don't have any high level of skill in the water by any means, but we started training. I did open ocean swims. I did laps in the pool. But I'd never, going up to the swim, I never swam that distance, even in practice. 
you know, I just got in the ocean to uh, teach and test my water competency in open ocean waves, which is another beast. And I got in the pool and swam probably 30, 40 laps just to kind of uh, get myself used to the motion and, and swimming is like, I, I could swim all day, but when you put me in the ocean, I can't swim all day. You know, it's swimming's very repetitive. It's very low impact. And once you find that steady heart rate, you can just pretty much keep moving, keep moving, swim for two hours, get something to eat, some energy, keep swimming, keep swimming. And it was a four mile swim Four mile. It was 3.78 miles. Yeah. And they just did a similar one for their an, or inaugural in San Diego recently. I believe so. Yeah. Same organization. Mm, or a different organization. I think it was a different organization. Yeah. But it was, uh, I don't think it was four miles. I think it was around a pier and back or something like that. I'm, I may be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But yeah, they they uh, did have another one. Going way back. Where'd you grow up? Alabama. Florence, Alabama. Small town. What kind of population we talk about when you say small town? I'm not sure exactly of the population, but probably 13,000, 14,000 people is really small. And if you break it down... Um, a lot smaller. I grew up in St. Florine. So you have Florence, which is a huge one and St. Florine is right outside of Florence. And there's probably thousand people there. That is very small. Mm -hmm. Did you have military in your family? Uh, my grandpa was an MP in the reserve, but I never hardly, I think there's like one or two pictures that I saw. I never had a previous interest in the military and my uncle went into the coast guard. And I remember trying to video chat with him on dial up. And we would get one frame like every three minutes. It was really bad. Um, but yeah, I just remember seeing him over there in Kuwait. Still never piqued my interest. I, I always said, you know, I'd never go in the military. It wasn't something I, that I considered at all. Through high school, what was your anticipation for adult life? Alabama has this, well, the town that I grew up in has this really small town vibe. You know, if you moved away, people tend to shun you. If you, if you do anything out of the ordinary, you know, people word word travels fast in small towns. So I always wanted to be accepted. I never considered moving away. I was always just satisfied with what I was doing, which is the wrong mindset to have in my opinion. And going through high school, originally I was interested in electricity, electrical technology. I used to mess with people's car stereos and put speakers in and mess with their headlights and everything. So that was my, my interest in high school. Yeah. The, when you say they would shun you for, for moving away. Mm -hmm. So would have joining the military, have you considered moving away or leaving the town? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So not a big contingent of people joining the military from no, your not, town. Not at all. No, I think there were three people that I knew personally that had gone to the military you know, out of, I graduated with 90 something people, still a small class. I think two of them went to the military. They're, uh, Jacob and then Jake. Yeah. I remember the names. <laughs> yep. So a, a small minority from a very small community left, left your town yes. to join the military. Yes. Yep. When you got out of high school, mm -hmm. what were you doing? Was I, college on your radar? Yep. I, I went to college on a Pell grant, which is, um, a grant from the government to lower income families. And I didn't really know what I want to do, but you know, the small town mindset told me that you have to graduate high school and you have to either get a job or go to college. And I said, I wasn't ready to get, get a, a big boy job yet. So I said, I'll go to college. And 
I started going for electrical technology. And every time I would go to college, it just felt like a nightmare, you know, having to, I was falling behind in, in the classes. I was not really showing up. I was not motivated to go. It was just something that was constantly lingering over me because I knew I had schoolwork pretty much 24 seven, either in class or they would assign us stuff online. And I remember a few times my mom was so anxious about me not completing my schoolwork that she would do some of it for me. And yeah, that was, that was my experience with college. What did your parents want for you? My parents, they didn't, I don't know. They didn't really, obviously they wanted me to succeed, but they never really said, Hey, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? They just kind of, they were real good about letting me find out what I liked and, and deciding on what I really wanted to do. And I was, I started, you know, the, the entrepreneurial thing, I feel like was instilled in me. And I always had the interest of selling my own things, like um, booking people to install their stereos was something I loved doing. And I had a friend, Sam Gaskin, still a really good friend of mine. Throughout high school, we would install stereos together. And he'd say, oh, I'll put the tweeters in, you put the stereo in. And there was a certification that I really want is called MECP, Mobile Electronics Certification Professional, which qualified you in the job world to get a job as an installation specialist. And it was something that I really, really wanted at the time. I said, mom, it's $75 to take the test, including the workbook. Will you pay for it? This is something I want to do. And she gladly, she paid for it. She took me to the, the testing center and I failed it. And uh, yeah. Did I'm um, Leaning back to what you were saying before, was it just a lack of application in the sense of not studying? Yeah, it really was. I, I'm, I'm a firm believer now if you apply yourself to something that you can accomplish anything. And back then I was just not motivated. I didn't even go to the gym. That, I didn't even go to the gym back then. I was just, compared to what I am now, I was lazy. I, I was just satisfied. You know, didn't really want to reach the next level. Didn't want to improve. Didn't want to do anything really. Almost kind of sounds like it's a negative byproduct of being from a small town where kind of spreading your wings and growing isn't encouraged. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you, in, in high school, the mindset of if, if you set out on a different journey other than other people, you were going to get shunned. And I'm not talking about my family or my close friends. It was just people that knew of me, like in high school, you know, definitely church was one of the most judgmental places that I have ever been to still to this day. And if you were different, it's not easy to be accepted. What was the projected or, or path that would have been expected for you staying in that town? Graduating high school, getting a job or going to college, and getting a job after college. So basically, it all ends up to getting a job. But staying local. For sure, yeah. Yep. So then what drew you to the military? I just had this, this conniption, I guess that's the correct word for it. And I pretty much just woke up one day and my friend said, Hey, I'm going to the Naval recruiting, um, recruiting station. I'm going to join the Navy. And I was thinking, oh, come with okay. me. Cause I don't want to do this by myself. Exactly. That's what he said. And, and initially I was like, okay, well, good luck with that. He said, why don't you come hang out? We can get something to eat or something after I said, oh, okay, sure. So originally I parked, he texted me, he said, come inside. 
And he really wasn't getting gonna, trying to get me to join. He didn't really care regardless because he knew he was going to join and leave and and whatnot. But he said, come inside. So I, I went inside. I sat down in the recruiting station. You know, saw all these big pictures of the Navy and Navy SEALs and SWIC and Dive and EOD. And the recruiter didn't say anything to me. Usually. Because the posters say it all. Exactly. The, the, the recruiter, he didn't say anything to me, which is a complete contrast from the different recruiters. The Marines are like, hey, you're a piece of shit. You need to join the Marine Corps and, and you know, excel your life or whatever they say. And I just felt welcomed in the Navy Recruiting Center. And I was looking on all, all the posters I saw. I really liked the bell bottoms, the dress blue bell bottoms. I was like, dang, those are, those look nice. And I think that's the first time I've ever heard that. Really? Yeah. I like them because it's not typical. You know, they're, they're really, really old uniforms, but they are made current. So, I mean, they're, they're obviously they're not, we don't, they don't use the same uniforms from like the 1900s. Um, but the look of them is inspired from the old, older sailor uniform. So you like and tradition. I, I like that. I, I love the, the aspect of tradition. And when I started to leave, the recruiter said, hey, what's your name? I said, my name's Austin. And he said, here, take this, consider the Navy. And it was a Navy SEAL pamphlet. And I said, okay. And at the time, my parents were going through a, a tough divorce. It was tough on me. It was a tough on, really tough on them. First time I ever saw my dad shed tears was, was during the divorce, which is really hard on me. And my mother was moving out and I just had this sense of independency where I have to, it's time to kick it into high gear. You know, I, I live with my parents, my parents pay my cell phone bill, pay my car insurance. The only thing I paid for was, was gas in the car and food if I wanted to go out to eat. And I just had this mindset shift that day. I looked at the pamphlet. I got on the, the dial-up internet at home. I typed in, I Googled Navy SEAL and kind of started reading what these guys were about. And a day and a half later, I had made the decision. I was going to go back in the recruiting office and say, sign me up, you know, get me out of here by any means. And that's what I did. Do you come from a big family? Not really. It was initially uh, my mother and my dad. And then I had a brother. He's 15 months older than me. So we were constantly in competition with everything, same clothes, same, you know, sports, whoever's, um, you know, better at sports or basketball or whatever. And besides that, we lived pretty close to my grandparents. And other than that, I would, I would see my other family cousins maybe once, twice, um, every three or four months. You said previously that the town may have shunned you for whatever reason, but you always felt support from your family. Yeah, for sure. When you, when you made that decision that, uh -huh. hey, I'm leaving, I'm going in the military, did you get support from your family? My dad, no. Because he said, I don't know why you're doing that. You're going to leave. You're going to go overseas. You're going to get killed. Um, he just was not fond of the idea. And I told my mom, and she thought I was joking. Because I'm a jokester. I joke about a lot of stuff. I, I, I push it to the next level. You know, April Fool's stuff, I push it to the <laughs> next level. I won't say April Fool's until three or four days later. Um, so she thought I was joking. And I said, Mom, join the Navy. She said, oh, okay, okay. Did you get the ultimate irony of signing up around April Fool's? Um, no, I didn't. I think oh, okay. I, I think I actually... Maybe I mean, so. that, would, that would have been a cool maybe trick so. to play. Maybe she did think it was an <laughs> April Fool's because I left seven months later. I left on December 3rd and April, May, so... April, May is when I, when I depped in. So maybe she did think it was an April fool's joke, you know? So she was kind of like, okay, cool, whatever. Um, 
pretty sure she thought I was joking. And my dad took it seriously. He's like, I don't know why you're doing that. You're going to go overseas. You're going to get killed. I don't, I don't want to lose you. All this other kind of stuff. Just trying to talk me out of it. And I said, well, too late. I had already gone in there. First of all, I, I went in there and I depped in without telling anybody. What year is this? 2013. And how old were you at the time? 21. Okay. Yeah. And I'd signed the papers and everything. And I was going to the military entrance processing station, MEPS, in like two weeks. And from there, I just had this kick into overdrive. You know, the military gave me something to look forward to. I knew I was going to go and, and I knew I was going to change my life. And I knew it was going to be a complete shift from what I was doing which was basically nothing at the time I was, I was cutting grass full time and making pizzas, which I didn't, I didn't tell that, that story, how I got do, uh, to doing that, but I'll tell it here shortly. And see, I'm plugging your podcast so people will I, listen. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm hoping there's a direct connection between like making pizzas while you're mowing grass. Um, I wish there was, <laughs> but I, I will tell you when I, when I dropped out of college, I said, this is not for me. Pretty much the only reason I was going is because I was getting money, you know, I was getting paid for, plus I was getting additional money for books and supplies, and which um, was good to me. You know, I'd get another three or $400. It was like a gold mine because money for me was, it was very scarce. That money was supposed to go to college stuff, though, well, not it, in your it, pocket. It paid for my books, you know, <laughs> but I, I had an, another $300, $400 that Got I could it. spend. You know, I went to Arby's a few times. You know? <laughs> five for uh, five? Exactly. Well, my, I had a friend that worked there. And he would, his name, five for he, he, one, five for three. <laughs> so we would get five sandwiches for $3. Pretty sure that's why he got fired a few months later, but he would hook us up and we were there almost every day. So when I dropped out of college and I said, okay, well I need to find a job. So I started applying around, applied for the fire department, applied for police department. And then I applied for the park and recs department for the city of Florence, which is like, you don't need any experience. You don't need any type of past work history or anything. So I got called in by a guy named Doug. Doug was probably 65, 70 at the time. And my mom, always, she, before she, before I left for the interview, she, I, I called her. I was like, hey, mom, what I say in this interview? She said, when, before you walk out, ask when do you start? She was always, she was always <laughs> a proponent of saying those words ask, when do I start? And so I went in, I interviewed, I was dressed up, you know, I had a collar shirt on khakis, church shoes on Sunday's best. And I walk in and it, all these people were, were just greasy and oily, had grass all over themselves, jeans, t-shirts. And Doug said, well, why are you so dressed up? This is the park and rec. And I was, well, sir, this is my first job interview, to be honest. And I'm, I'm you know, kind of nervous and he asked me a few questions, really generic questions. And he said, do you have any questions for me? I said, well, when do I start? He said, I'll tell you what. He said, since I like you and since you ask me, when do you start? I'll let you go get your, your analysis done and you can start you know, in two weeks. I'll give you a call. We'll develop your schedule. So in two weeks, I was, I was cutting grass for the city of Florence, park and rec. And around that time, I think I had worked there for like a year and that's when I had depth in. I graduated at 18, went to about a year and a half of college, 1920. And then when I was 20, I started working for the park and rec. And then I depth in when I was 21. When I depth in, I quit my job. And I was devoting all of the time that, that seven months that I had to ship out towards training. 
every day. It was CrossFit. It was eating slices of pita bread and drinking some water. And it was going right into a lifting session. And in the evening I would probably do a run. So I was doing, I was crazy about two or three times a day. I was working out. Is that normal? That long of a, a waiting period before you actually deploy or not at all head off to boot camp? No, not at all. It, what I had done was my recruiter said, if you want to be Navy SEAL or any special warfare or special operations, push your ship date out as long as you can. So you can take these PST tests, the physical screening tests required for spec op or spec war in the Navy. So when I went to MEPS, they checked my eyesight. They said, your eyes are, are bad. You, you don't qualify for Navy SEAL unless you get PRK or LASIK, which I couldn't afford. I said, okay, what's the next best thing? They said, Navy diver. I said, I'll take it. So <laughs> uh, they said, we recommend pushing out your ship date. We have a ship date date leaving in September for your backup job, which was IT informations technician, I think. And kind of electronics related. Kind of sort of, <laughs> but the Navy has a way of not speakers and tweeters and subwoofers. No, no not at all. <laughs> but the the goal was to pick a job that I did not want to do to motivate and push me more to to claim this diver contract. So as soon as I came back from MEPS, I started a strict regimen and that was the one of the times where I've been the most dedicated in my t- entire life is is training every single day, getting more fit and in shape. And uh, for the next seven months, I, I trained. I quit my job at the park and rec. And about three months later, I said, well, I need some money. I probably had $1,000 saved up. I, I made that mon- uh, money last. And a friend of mine had a pizza shop. I said, can I work here and make pizzas? And so I did. I was, I was making pizzas in the afternoon for like three or four hours just for a little bit of get-by money. And worked there and, until I shipped out. Because pizzas fuel a exercising body. Exactly. I wasn't eating the most, the best food because keep in mind, I, I had a lot of my eating, a lot of my money that I was spending went towards food. I would buy these little a dollar packs of, of pita bread or it was like a sandwich thin at Aldi. And after I trained, I would just cram three or four of them. I, I had no clue about nutrition. I just knew I needed to eat more because at the time that I started training CrossFit, I was dropping weight like crazy. I said, this doesn't need to happen. So I started getting a lot better. I started um, learning and reading more stuff and, and learning the way my body works. And that's where I was really in tune with, with my workout schedule and my, and my um, quantity that I was eating. I wasn't eating the best food because I would go cram a buffalo pizza, you know, with extra cheese on it at, at Stefano's, the pizza restaurant. But you're still at that age where you, and we've all been there. You could pretty much eat just about whatever you want for sure. And on, on the surface, it appears to have no negative impact on your fitness. Yeah, for sure. Yep. I was, I was, I was eating Zaxby's. I was eating, they had a lot of other things on the menu, wings, bread. They had these breads that, that when they, took them off of a table, I would grab the rest of them. I would save them for the next day and eat them because I knew, I knew that I needed carbs. That's pretty much all I knew. I didn't know anything about fats, proteins, uh, macro, micronutrients, anything, nothing like that. I was just eating. Now, before we go forward into your military career, you said something that hits home. And, and for me, you actually looked at law enforcement. Yes. Did do you have law enforcement in your family? My Uncle got out of the Coast Guard and he became a police officer. 
And then I'm not sure my, his son is actually, he lives with me, Braxton. He's one of my, he helps me produce and video. Uh, but he's now a, he was a detective and now he works at the, I'm not sure what he does, but he's, he was in lots of different law enforcement. And besides that, that's the only person in my family is that was in law enforcement. So really going towards service, military law mm-hmm. enforcement was driven on your own. There, there really was kind of no history or, or lineage in your family for it. Yeah, it was. And to be honest, when I initially applied, I was just applying because I needed a job and I knew that I was, I was capable of, of doing the things. There wasn't really a service aspect in there because, you know, at the time I was just kind of sounds selfish, but I was just worried about myself. Like I need money, but I need a job. I need a, a way to it, you know, to, to get money. But how you were raised in the sense of your community, mm-hmm. that wasn't encouraged per se. No, not at all. It was, I think there were one or two people that graduated high school and, and went into law enforcement, but I never asked them, never, never talked to them about their job or anything. So you enter the Navy. Mm-hmm. At that time, were you thinking that this was going to be your career or were you thinking short-term? I got the intel. Someone um, told me that was in the net. I believe it was my recruiter. He said, now we already recruited you, so we don't care how long you stay in, but you can make this a career. There's plenty of college benefits, or if you want to get out and do something else, you could, you can do that. He, he said, so never lock yourself into a contract longer than what you think you uh, will be happy fulfilling. So originally I signed for a six year, which was ND. I, I, I took the PSTs and I, I snagged those, those numbers and I became really good and very fit. And I, I qualified, um, when I qualified, they said that was one of the top placements in the East coast in the United States. And yeah, I, I didn't look at it, at it like, Oh, I'm going to do 20 years for sure. And I never recommend somebody going in and, and when they first start and say, I'm going to do 20 years. Because you could have a complete mind shift, you know, you could, you could love the job and, and everything, but what if, um, something unexpected happens, which causes you to have a, a job shift, you know, I mean, it can happen. It can ha- happen very fast. It can happen to anybody. Sounds like you've read my intro on the podcast. Possibly. <laughs> but Maybe. you bring up a great point because this podcast is geared at law enforcement and military. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I've told people that the, the military does that kind of aids that is they do their enlistments at a, at a set period of time, yep. four years, six years. So it forces you to reevaluate your life as opposed to government or law enforcement work where it's, hey, 20, 25, 30 years. There is no reevaluation period yeah. unless you force yourself to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I feel like. You know, there's, it's kind of like a one track in law enforcement where, okay, you, you've started and you have 20 years left to go to get the retirement or to get the benefits or 25 years. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it's 20 years, right? It, Most it, departments. it depends. It, there's, there's no set standard. Uh, unlike being in the Navy, mm-hmm. there, across the country, every agency has something different. It could be a state requirement, yeah. a county requirement. So, okay. Um, but yeah, in the, in, the, in the military, you have these, these blocks of time where, Okay, you'll do two years here, and you can either get out or reenlist. And then, okay, if you reenlist, you have three years here, and then you can get out and reenlist. So, like you were saying, there there are blocks of time which causes you to reevaluate your decision. 
So going in, you were just looking at your first block. It was six years. You were going to be a Navy diver. Yes. I wasn't even looking at the future, to be honest. I didn't, I wasn't cared. I didn't care about where I'd end up. I didn't care how long I was going to, um, well, I, I just, I, I wasn't looking at that. The, the, I'm not a good long-term planner and I've never been good at that. So just initially I was looking at going in and passing the requirements. Yeah. You're now in the Navy. I got out in November. Well, no, what I oh, mean okay, is you've, oh, okay. you've gone yeah, into the got Navy, you, got you. Yeah. you're headed towards Navy diver, but you, you ended up being a master at arms. Mm-hmm. Where'd that transition occur? So when I was in boot camp, I had really tough infection and I, tell people this all the time. They're like, no, you didn't almost lost my leg. I had cellulitis. I was, do you need both legs to be a Navy diver? Yes. Okay. Unless you get approved by a board and that, that, that comes very later. We're, 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 (laughs) we haven't stepped into those grounds yet, but I was in the hospital for a week and a half, really bad case of cellulitis. I, I knew that my leg, something was wrong with my leg because I had a fever I, my lymph nodes were hurting my lymph nodes in my, I guess they're lymph nodes. Yeah. In, in your hip area, they were super sore and I was just basically dead. No energy fever of like hundred, 203. I would wake up constantly sweating in bootcamp, but I didn't tell anybody because I just wanted to graduate. Right. And I had pushed it so far to the limit where I was marching one day and my leg was throbbing so bad. I couldn't continue. And so I dropped out of formation. I was, I got yelled at for the first one or two minutes. I said, my leg, my leg, my leg, my legs. So they helped me back to the compartment. And when I looked at my leg, I couldn't even get my trousers up over my, my leg. So I pulled the trousers off. Of course you got PT shorts on underneath. So don't get excited. And that there comes was later. I know. I know there was a, a swollen knee, the size of a softball. And I was in disbelief. My recruit, my petty officers were like, in disbelief was was it related to an injury or something that had happened during training it was an infection i, I had I, I guess i had scraped my knee maybe uh going to the gun course or something like that and it had gotten infected in the dirty uh compartment and it was so bad that i could my whole leg was swollen it would not bend they gave me crutches and they said go to medical so there i am at, at 2100 or 9 p.m knocking on the medical door it was a a half mile that I had walked on these crutches in the, on the icy. I just remember that like yesterday, just walking the, the sense of being free and out of the compartment was, was keeping me level headed. But I said, man, my leg is really messed up. And every time my heart beat, it would send a shooting pain through my leg. So I get to the, the, after my uh, petty officer saying, Holy shit. That's like looking at my knee. Like that's, that's bad. You need to go to the which was getting me more scared because I had the opinions of others that they were saying, oh, shoot, you're basically going to die because your knee's really bad. So I walked up to the, the medical, and there I am. I probably look like, um, I don't know, what's the Christmas guy, the Yeti? What's his name? The Abominable Snowman. Abominable Snowman, yeah, yeah, because it was snowing. I was freezing. <laughs> I had icicles in my nose, knocking on the door, and he came to the door. He said, how can I help you? I said, my knee, my knees, my knees bad. Petty officer sent me here. So they sat me down on the table. He's like, holy shit, your knee is like, I got to call the commander. So they called the medical commander of the whole base. She comes in. She's like, holy shit. Like everybody was freaking out and which was making me freak out. So they sent me to the hospital. Doctor what looks at it. What were you seeing on your knee at this point? It was just a big swollen, swollen. ball. 
no pus, no anything yet. Discoloration? Because, yeah, it was red. It was super red, almost purple. And it was, you can see a defined line where the red stopped, which is never good. It means the uh, infection is spreading. So made to the hospital, the doctor looked at my knee and he's like, <laughs> he just shakes his head all calmly. He's like, this is not good. So they put me, he said, we're going to put you in the intensive care unit because we don't have any beds in the, which is a complete lie. I was in the ICU because I needed it. Trying to and keep you calm. Exactly. So they gave me some Motrin and, and everything to try to calm the fever down. They injected something into my leg. I don't know if it was a, if it was a local anesthetic or I don't know what it was, but I was so tired and I was so in and out from the fever. I woke up and there were like seven doctors and I woke I woke up because they were poking at my knee and it hurt and they were just studying it and looking at it and everything. And I went to go have an MRI done and some more tests. And they said, you have a very extreme case of, we think it's MRSA, which is methicillin resistant staphylococcus aureus. It's a bad form of staph that cannot be controlled by the typical antibiotic. Not something you want to hear. No, not at all. And at this time, the previous night they had, uh, drawn a purple marker around the infection. And they explained to me that the infection had spread so fast. It was completely like one or two inches outside of that purple marker. So he said, what we're going to do is we're going to give you an antibiotic called Zosin. It's the, one of the most powerful. It's, it's pretty effective against MRSA, but if it has gotten in your lymphatic system, then we're going to need to amputate your leg to prevent the infection from spreading across the entire body. And I remember at the time it didn't click to me, but when he told me that I was just, I had a TV with Facebook and I was able to call my mom with the phone. I was just calling people and, and chatting with people. I said, mom in the hospital, I feel great. You know, they're giving me food, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I was just on that high of, of getting, you know, to talk to my family again, whatever, whenever I wanted in the hospital. So did you not even register that he said, potentially they're going to have to take your leg? Yeah, I was. Ignorance is bliss. Exactly. I wasn't. I guess I was just, I guess it was camouflaged by the fact that I was out of the recruit petty officer or RDC's eyesight and I was more free and I was getting hospital food, you know, pretty much whenever I wanted it. I was getting like the things they take away from boot camp. I was getting like hospital pizza, like all this stuff. So I was on this high of like, oh man, this is actually kind of good. You know, I can sit on here, I can chat with my friends, I can call my parents, whatever. But about three days later, it set in because I was hooked on the antibiotics and every single day they would draw that circle, draw that circle. And it, they ended up, the last time they drew it, they just put a circle around my ankle and a circle around my thigh because the infection had spread so far up my leg. My leg was almost double the size of this leg. It was really bad. I wish I had pictures. I think, I think there are photos in my, in my medical record, but it was bad. I couldn't get up, get up and go to the bathroom. I couldn't get up and walk and it was a, it was a bad thing. I was in the hospital for a week and a half. How did it end up? Obviously you've got your leg and yes, I've you, got my leg did, now. We're you, good. It, they gave it back to you. Yes. So <laughs> they, uh, Zosin paired with another antibiotic and they were shooting up local antibiotic, uh, antibiotics pretty much every day. And I, they were giving me blood thinners to, so I wouldn't get a heart clog or a blood clot in my brain and everything. And all of a sudden, one morning we woke up and the infection was less and they had already proved it wasn't in my lymphatic system. So they had already four or five days later, they ruled out that they were going to have to take it out of my leg.
but the option was cutting the infection out just so it wouldn't have any chance of spreading if the antibiotics didn't get to it. Long story short, this has already been a long, long story <laughs> about the hospital part. Um, the infection started going down and then next day down, down, down. And they were like, well, this is great. You know, the infection was completely taken over your leg and now the Zosin is, is helping out a lot. And it got to where it was the original softball again, which I was glad I still couldn't hardly bend my knee or anything. Um, it's weird to think that getting back to softball size is a good thing. Yes, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and, um, I had already told my mom, I, I called my mom. I said, Hey mom, I'm probably gonna lose my leg. And she, she thought it was another joke, but you know, at the time she kind of somewhat took it seriously cause I was in boot camp. And every time I talked to her about it, she doesn't like to speak about it because I guess she was scared for me. But after getting well, I said, please let me, please send me back now. I want to graduate with my division. So took them two days to process me out. I go back to training service or recruit training center. And two days later, I saw my division graduating and it was terrible sight to see because they put me in a THU temporary holding unit in the recruit convalescent unit, which is like the place where you could stay to heal for broken bones and infection and stuff like that. I saw them walking out in their dress blues and it was just, I got majorly depressed and all the people that I've had grown to become friends with and work out with and push, push and motivate me. We're all leaving. So this came very near the end of boot camp. Yes. For you. Yeah. It was, uh, I was in boot camp for nine weeks because we were on a two week hold because of the holiday period. And then that's when we met our petty officers at the end of that two weeks. And when we officially started. So, um, yeah, I did, I didn't get to graduate with my division. And at the time I wasn't that good at handling depression, anxiety. And there were a few, you know, two weeks was a very dark place for me being in that recruit convalescent unit because everybody was depressed. Everybody was, it was not a good environment at all. And. But you were, you were more only there just because you had dropped behind your class and they couldn't just kind of stick you back in. Well, and because my knee was healing, I had to get a cleared. Oh, you hadn't been cleared yet. I haven't been cleared. No, I was still on, uh, L what is it? Limited LLD limited light duty. And that's what they call the Navy. And I had to be cleared for FFD, fit for full duty. And so I was in there, I was doing some rehab. And now exactly like you said, I was thinking the whole time, like, I'm not one of these people. I'm just in here for an infection. I'm just waiting for my knee to get better so I can bend it. All these other people had like cancers, diabetes, stress fractures, broken bones, broken necks. And it was just a very depressing place. I don't recommend anybody to go to RCU. But... Every Wednesday, I was going to see this lieutenant, and probably like the second or third time I saw her, I said, "Please, LT, you have to clear me fit for full duty. I can't, I can't keep staying in the recruit convalescent unit. It's the most depressing place ever. Please." She's okay. She's like, "Bend your knee." So I was like, "Force the bend," which was it hurt a lot, but I was I was faking like I was good. I just wanted to get out of THU, and she said, "Okay, cool, you're good." and it wasn't like she was breaking the rules to her. It appeared that I was okay. So with FFD on my record, I, they didn't have a dive class that classed up because I was already out of the whole scheduling thing. And, and they put me across the road at the temporary holding unit. And that's where I became a dive scruff. I was a scruff for about two weeks. And what's a scruff? 
Um, it is a tenant, a pool tenant that basically adheres to whatever the instructors say. So the instructors would be there. All of the special divisions that were going through boot camp would be there. And you had the dive scruffs. They got the pool lanes out. They got the pool bricks out. They would stand watch. They would make coffee for the instructors. Basically, the instructors. Gopher. Gopher. Yeah. And, Politely. <laughs> yeah. So there I was, you know, they were making us PT. We, we would PT at the temporary holding unit. And at, keep in mind, like my knee was, I was in such pain every single day, but I had fit for full duty on my record. So I couldn't say anything about it. And I remember one time I was standing coffee watch and 5.45 AM, here come the instructors rolling in. You got EOD master chiefs, you got Navy SEAL lieutenants, you got all these high ranking and high, um, just these really, the instructors that have these tremendous accomplishments on their record. And there I am, a little E2 seaman recruit, wearing this stupid ass helmet they, they gave me. It was this purposely this huge steel helmet, sitting there at attention at the coffee watch. And so, you know, two or three came in, the, the, the normal, and then three more came in, and then four more came in. I was looking at my little six-cup coffee pot. I was thinking, there's no way this coffee pot is going to hold up to all these um, military dudes. And, you know, they poured cup after cup, and my job was Start to Start giving shots of coffee. The, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but they were just getting these hefty cups, you know. it was uh, They were doing a PST with the pre-buds guys. That's why all the instructors were over here. And I was thinking, oh, shit, this coffee, this, this is not going to hold up. Well, lo and behold, you get like the seventh person in line. They pour the coffee and they bring it over there to my face and they go like this, like shaking it in front of my face. It's empty. Basically. And he's like, why is there no coffee in my, you know, they were just messing with me. Why is there no coffee in my, in my coffee maker? I was like, I, uh, my apologies, sir. I didn't expect this to meet people. And I had fresh coffee in there ready to go, but I just didn't want to turn it on because I didn't want to spill it on them. You know, I was real... I was indecisive. So he's like, get on your, uh, he's like bear crawl. So I bear crawl. He said, give me 10 laps around the pool. So there I am bear crawling around the pool with his helmet dripping over my face, just not seeing where I'm going. I, I bear crawl, come back sweaty. Is everybody picturing Rick Moranis in space balls, the size of I've never helmet? Seen, oh, okay. I've never seen space balls. I wish go, I, go, go I, wish watch I could after. share this with you right now. Go but, watch okay. it. Okay. Okay. That's our age difference. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> Oh, do you thir uh, 31? Yes. Okay, cool. I'm 29. See? <laughs> so come back and my knee was just throbbing like boom, boom, boom. He's like, you never let that coffee cup go empty again. You understand me? I was like, yes, instructor. So anyways, finally, best news of my life back then. I got back to temporary holding unit. I was in there for two weeks and they said, Alexander, you're, clip for, you're, clip. <laughs> you're fit for full duty. You're going to training service center, hop on the bus. I grabbed my sea bag. I hopped on the bus and I was over at training service center, complete change of environment. I had freedom to uh, wear different socks if I wanted, you know, which was huge. I got my cell phone. I was able to, to chat back and forth with my family. And um, a week and a half later, I classed up for dive and I was holding in there really good. I mean, considering my knee, I was going on the runs. I was enjoying it. I was the class leader. It, everything was great. And we got to uh, man day, make a long story short. We got to man day, which is where they strap you up with twin eighties and a 10 pound weight belt. You have fins on, but you have to tread in the water. And I remember all of their names. You had a Kozlowskis, which was my main partner. 
He was the best swimmer. I was the best runner. You had a Fulcher. He was the worst swimmer. So, Kozlowskis and I were going into the water. They said, hold on, let's switch this up. So, they put me with Fulcher. And we go into the pool, dive check. Uh, so, seat. you're the best swimmer going with the worst no, swimmer. No, I'm the best runner. I'm best the best, runner. best land PT. And then Kozlowskis was the best swimmer. Uh, we're the, the two most in shape people in the entire class. And then you had Fulcher, which is the worst swimmer. And his name was Austin too. <laughs> I said, we're going to put two Austins together. So one, two, three, dive suit, question machine in the water. One, two, three, look left, look right, look straight, look at the horizon. And then you entered the pool, came up, we were treading, we we're going through these dive checks and it was man day. So the instructors were splashing water in, in your face and everything. And I checked Austin. Everything was good. I turned around. He was checking all my straps. You know, he was supposed to go under and he was supposed to tap my head, dunk me. And I never heard, I never felt the tap. So there I am just treading with this weight on, waiting two, three minutes roll by. And then I kind of tread over and turned around and I saw the instructor just sitting there or just treading there, just waiting. He had the tanks on. He said, what are you looking at? Go ahead and, and, and check the instructors. They had, uh, Austin had dropped on requests behind me. So, and I didn't hear that going on because of all the noise and whatnot. So by that time, it was probably six, seven minutes at the time I was in the water. I could not properly hold my head above the, the pool. So I grabbed the side of the pool. They said, Alexander, get out. Um, and they said, nonverbal DOR, get out of the pool. So I went straight to the chief's office. Back then, I didn't know there's no such, no such thing as a nonverbal DOR. What they had made me do. Sounds th- like a very technical term. That yeah. They made and, up. And at the time, I was so stunned and, and like had no clue what had just happened. He said, sign this, sign this sheet for nonverbal DOR. And I signed it, gave it back to him, which is where I messed up. There's no such thing as a nonverbal DOR. They had pulled me out of the pool and made me sign the, the or not made me. I still blame myself, but I signed the, the DOR sheet. And the next thing you know, I was at re-rating before I knew it. It was, a, it was a tough week for me. I just sat in my room. I was like a vegetable. I just sat there and I knew that I was still going to be in the Navy. I said, what is my job going to be now for the next four years? My whole life had changed in a matter of five minutes. I've heard stories like that, and I, I not having been there, but looking back on it, could that been actually a test per se to see what you were going to do when they said, hey, just sign this? Probably so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they do random things with students all the time. And I guess they had, they had seen something in me like you either could have kept pushing in the pool and got your head above water, or sank to the bottom and let us come get you or something. I don't know. I guess they just wanted me. They didn't think I should have been in the, the pipeline. So they, they ruled me out. And, and still to this day, the reason why, referring back to our initial conversation about the Hudson River swim, the reason why I wanted to challenge myself is because still to this day, I have not had an experience like that before, the, the fear of, of drowning in the water. And I wanted to retest myself and, and conquer that with the Hudson River swim. And initially, the first mile was the toughest for me. Remember, I said I thought I was going to drown twice. I was overtaken by a wave. And you're out there. You have no control over the ocean. You have no control over the environment. But me just gutting it out and saying, fuck this. I'm going to push through, and I'm going to finish this swim. Is that swim in a wetsuit or just trunks? It was just trunks. So you've got no built-in buoyancy? No built-in buoyancy, no. Um, So... Yeah, we did, we did the swim and, and to me it was a, it was a big accomplishment because to me it was kind of burying that feeling of fear of the water. And 
I feel like now I can jump in the ocean and swim just fine. For me, one of the things that I was telling myself is the ocean is rough on top of the water, but if you go under, it won't be as rough. So every stroke I took, I was doing the combat size stroke. I was going under the water and just cruising. And then I would control my breathing, come up, breathe again, go under the water. And, and for me, the, the, the other three miles of the water was my friend that day. And it also had to be huge for you to get past that somebody telling you we perceived you as quitting when in your head you hadn't quit. Yeah, it was. I, I knew I had no control over it after the fact, but for that was a, you know, it destroyed my confidence for a lot of, a lot of ways, a, a lot of reasons. And when I got to the re-rater, I picked MA, went to MAA school and I was thinking, y'all do, y'all don't know how easy you got it here. The PT was twice a week as opposed to twice a day in dive training. And I was thinking, this is a breeze. I said, maybe when I get out to the fleet, it'll be a little harder. Got to Bahrain. And the, the physical aspect, it was a breeze. The mental aspect, it was a breeze. It sucked sometimes because it was really hot. And the hours were long. But everything else was a breeze. So everything I, I come, everything in the Navy that I experienced, I compared to dive training and how hard it was. Um, so it made everything else breeze. One of the things that, I want to touch on for this podcast as a whole is obviously the mental health, but also the physical health of Mm -hmm. whenever you get to your transition, try to be or be the best you you can be. And my, my experience is law enforcement for many officers. Once they get out of the Academy, Mm -hmm. the, the drive to stay physically fit drops because very few agencies demand that same level of fitness as when you're in the Academy, when you're not in a, special forces type environment mm-hmm. in, in the military. Is it kind of the same way where fitness just becomes more, if you're going to be fit, it's going to be on you, not on yes, the Navy. For sure. Yep. hundred percent. And it's, it's, that's not good because I don't think they should force fitness on people. I just think if you don't have that initial spark to work out, then it's really hard to, to get the Navy to instill that in you because with Navy PT, you're not always going to be doing what you like to do. I always encourage people to do what you like to do, something active. If it's yoga, okay. If it's soccer, cool. Basketball, lifting, CrossFit, running, whatever you like to do, find an interest in some physical activity and and let it let it take over. Moving forward in the in the Navy, you're now mastered yes, arms. Mastered arms. At that point, uh-huh. are you now starting to think, basically starting to look at the calendar like I just can't wait to get out of here? Or were you starting to it, was it something that you were going to stick with and maybe potentially go longer with it? I never looked at the second enlistment until it got there. So I was just focused on consuming and learning. I said, okay, well, I'm in this realm now. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to be the best MA that I can. And I was just consuming, learning, because it was a completely new aspect for me. I was, I was learning OC spray weapons you know, laws, I was learning everything about being a patrolman and detaining suspects, apprehensions. So MA in the Navy is basically their military police? Yes, it is. MAA school is the groundwork, what you need to be a basic master at arms, law enforcement. And when you're an MAA or master at arms, what are your typical duties or what did you have to do? So my job for the first six months was pretty typical. It was uh, ATF, anti-terrorism force protection, ATFP. And that's what it was classified as 
that's what it was classified as in Bahrain. So we went to Bahrain and we were basically standing post. That that was our job. And they had caught wind that I had came out of dive and I was a decent swimmer and I already, I already had my level two swim qualification. So they said, we need some guys over at Harbor. So Harbor snacks me up and that's where I found my roots. I love, I loved the water of being on top of the water and I love driving the boats. I had the, the freedom to kind of patrol around instead of just standing in one spot on uh, the dry side. So let's go into your venture into YouTube yes. or social media. Cause you started this obviously while you were active in the military. Yes. What was the, the motivation or the catalyst to start posting your daily life online? So back in high school, I don't think I mentioned this, but I mentioned the entrepreneur aspect. And back then I was thrown into this class called current events and we're the teacher was, this is flashback to 20, 2008. Teacher said, well, to be honest, they just gave me this class to teach to you guys. I'm not sure what to teach about. I don't know what we're going to do. And I raised my hand. I said, how about we produce a weekly show where we talk about the news and politics and opinion and, and weather and broadcast it to the school. And she said, well, that's a great idea. So I, <laughs> I invested like maybe $200 in a little JVC of area. I'm pretty sure my mother bought it for me, but I taught myself to film and edit. And I absolutely loved presenting for the class because they were all looking at me every time I would put something funny in there. It was me. It was me. I was controlling, I was controlling the emotion of the class, whether it's laughing, whether it's interesting. I just loved that. I absolutely loved it. And that sparked my interest in video. When I got to Bahrain, I was in, I had no money management skills. I was in a lot of debt. And I remember buying a GoPro Hero 4 on a credit card. Pretty sure it maxed my credit card out. But I started kind of reimagining and re recapturing that spark of my interest in video. So I started making these little edits of Dorada Island and Dubai. And from there, I upgraded to a Canon T6. I'm giving you the long versions of everything today. Hopefully that's all right. That's fine. We're going on 55 minutes. Good. We're going to push this to six hours. Okay. Okay. So audience, go ahead and strap in. It's going to be a wild ride. It's going to be a six part episode. Yes. <laughs> you, I mean, you could break it up in 30 minutes and do 12, 12 episodes. Episode 12. Austin Alexander. Um, but screw everybody up and do it out of order. <laughs> episode <laughs> 10 first. Um, so with that little, you know, GoPro and then Canon that I, that I had, had gotten, I started to create these little vlog type videos and I probably created three or four. I didn't really put a super amount of time in there, but it allowed me to produce without going out and spending a lot of money on this and that. It was just kind of my, my thing that I, I kept. You know, some of the times I wouldn't even show the videos to people. I would just like to edit them. It allowed me to express creativity. Um, and when I got on the ship, everybody was pushing me to get my surface pin and my air warfare pin. And I'm thinking, well, if I did get out of the Navy, how would this benefit me? Because you have to spend like 40, 50 hours plus to get that studying, testing, boarding. You have to spend a lot of time to get those pins. At the time I had no pins and whether I was going to stay in or not, I didn't really care about having pins. Everybody was just gung ho about on the Navy, uh, on the ship. Got to get your pin, got to get your pin. You can get information dominance, air warfare and surface warfare. And to me, I had brought that little camera and I said, well, we're going to go out in port. We're going to get some cool footage. I'm going to 
photo you got. I'm going to take pictures and take videos of you guys and everything. It's going to be a great, great, great video. And at the end of the seven months, I had produced a seven minute video, just one seven minute video posted on Facebook. I think I got a couple hundred shares. Everybody in the comments were like, um, Oh, you should post this on YouTube. You should post it on YouTube. And, and at the time, this was 23, 4, 2015. And I was you thinking. Did, you did all the footage, all the editing, everything <laughs> on board the ship? Yes. I, I went to the media department and got some footage from them that I couldn't get, like aboard helicopters and drone footage and everything. And I was kind of, I went to the MC, Mass Communications, and I was in there. I was like, oh, what do you use to edit with Premiere Pro? Can I get a, I, I got a copy of them of Premiere Pro. They bootlegged it and put it on my computer. And I was just, my interest in video was just rapidly expanding. You know, I was trying to get different angles, this, that. And I had to go down the seventh deck of the ship and do the voiceovers for the video so I can explain what's going on. I had, I had built and scripted this story and kind of told our story of, of deployment. Probably two, three months later after deployment, I did post it on YouTube. I, I Did you have a goal in mind when you set out to do a project that big? Or was it just something just to take your mind off being on a ship? It was something to take my mind off the debt I was in and the ship and just the other stressors that were in my lifetime. At the time. I, I don't want to say like, oh, I was super depressed, super anxious at the time because I wasn't. You know, I was having fun on deployment. I was meeting new people. I was I was having a good time. But at all times, some um, some of us do have those underlying issues that we're facing. Like for me at the time, it was the debt and being separated from family and things like that. But I would imagine even on a, a huge ship, it's got to feel isolated. Very. You see the same people every single day. And it, it, it helps because they're going through the same exact thing that you are, you know, so you can kind of really find a really strong bond. That's where that strong military bond comes from is um, being in sucky situations at the same time you know, dealing with it and, and just having each other to lean on. And that's what we did. You know, I had a group, probably five or six friends. I'd see them at Chow, I'd wake up. I knew exactly what to expect. I was going to get in line for Chow. I was going to see Francisco, LaRocco, Tony at breakfast. And then I was going to go on shift. And then I was going to see the same people at lunch and same people at dinner, same people in gym. Um, so yeah, we were all, we were all going through it and, and dealing with the, the stress of deployment. But at the same time, it was kind of, it was kind of fun. So the first videos out on YouTube, yes. then what was the catalyst to then start posting more videos to YouTube? So when I had gotten back from deployment, we were going to do a training in, it wasn't Reno. What's it called? There's a city beside Reno, Fallon, Nevada. There's like nothing there except an air base. So my strike fighter squadron deployed there or, or went there on a detachment so the pilots could train. And I was a master arm, so I was attached to admin. They didn't really have a job for me, so they just said, okay, you're barracks patrol. You just patrol the barracks, make sure they're clean. And the base already had a cleanup crew, so we would clock in about 8 o'clock after their cleanup crew had come by, and we'd be like, well, there's nothing here, and then we would just leave. <laughs> All done. Yes, it was very, it was a lot of fun. And remember, I, I told you I'm giving, the, I'm giving you the long way. So this is where I met Sarah. And I, um, I'm going to text Sarah actually right now and tell her to come down here. So people, people in the podcast can see her, but a few of the friends were gung ho about just going to Reno and partying. They said, this is Vegas, Nevada. We can get strippers. We can go to the casino. And I said, okay, I was fresh out of a breakup because 
uh, previous girlfriend cheated on me on deployment. And so there we were. We were in Reno. And I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> I, I, I only like Reno now because I met Sarah there. <laughs> Got it. You know, um, it's kind of a bland place if you're not into gambling, you know. So we go to this place called the Eddie. And I was probably about 11 or 12 beers deep, feeling good, feeling great, good, good mindset. You know, even though I was charging everyone. Adding more beers, debt to Exactly. Your- yeah. And just, just not caring. <clears throat> and my friend said, I want you to go up to the prettiest girl in here. I said, okay. I looked around and I just see this blonde girl in this romper. And she was just staring at me. And I was thinking, what is this girl staring at? Is she going to kill me or, or what? And kind of, Glanced off, and then I glanced back again. She was just staring at me, just giving me this look. So I approached her. I said, what are you looking at? And part of me just wanted to go over there and talk to her, you know, because I thought she looked good and whatnot. Immediately, she was like, she was wooed by me, of course, because I'm pretty smooth with the ladies. But um, she was just. If started. she could only fast forward and see the handlebar mustache picture. I know. From she, she, she would not have, have been with me. Um, but she was pretty drunk, too. And we were just kind of feeling each other, and she was running her hands on my chest and all this, all this stuff. We got into good conversation and I got her number and played it cool. And how did I get on this topic? You asked me one question and I'm, you're, I'm giving you're you on your own form. path. I'm just okay. along for the ride. Okay, good. You're good. Um, so that's when I lost my virginity. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I kept in contact with Sarah and she was a travel nurse at the time making decent money in Reno and I had gotten orders to Seal Beach, California, right after uh, VFA 2 in Lemoore. So <clears throat> I told Sarah, I said, come visit me in Seal Beach. So she did. She visited me three or four times. And we got hung up on the idea of her becoming a travel nurse in California. She's like, I would love to do that. The money is a lot more great there. We can, you know, have a, we can move in as roommates. You know, our plan was to root, move in together, have a two bed, two bath, her, her own separate thing, mine's everything. And then we kind of just kept talking and then we officially became a thing because that's, that's what the kids like to do. And nowadays they, they like to have a, put a label on it. So we put a label on it, even though we were both head over heels for each other. And at the time I was, when I first moved to Seal Beach, I was living with two females <laughs> which she was completely fine with because we were all sharing the house and saving a lot of our housing allowance. We were getting, we were getting like $3,100 a month and I was paying all of you military. Yes. And I was paying like $800 a month in rent. So we were saving a pretty good penny. And when Sarah, Sarah got a job and she's like, well, I'm coming to California. And she, she was originally going to get her own apartment. And I said, well, that's stupid. why can't we just move in together? Cause we are already a thing. And so I told them, I said, look, I'm out of, I'm out, I'm out of the lease. They just let me walk away. So Sarah and I found a two bed, two bath condo on Pine street in Long Beach, California. And we moved in and yeah, I, I was still, the rest is history. <laughs> well, the rest is history with Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. Still deal with her every, every single day. Uh, you guys may see her in a, in a few minutes if she comes down. I'm sure if we talk to her, it's completely opposite. She has to deal with you every day. Well, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. But, but she can't live a day without me. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, I, that's where I was, I was settled down in Seal Beach, California. Well, we lived in Long Beach, but I worked in Seal Beach, drove about 25 minutes to work every day. 
I was in Harbor Patrol unit. Life was good. I was getting paid decent money with the, with the housing allowance. I think Sarah and I both paid $1,100 a month. I was getting an additional $2,000 a month from um, BAH. And that's when I started to pay, you know, like five, $600 a month down on my credit card. To keep in mind, I had two credit cards maxed out at about $20,000. And I said, this is not fast enough. This rate is going to take me four years to pay off this credit card. And hundred of that was going towards, or probably 200 of that was going towards interest every single month. It was just swallowing me whole. So Sarah, you know, being with Sarah, she was really, she, she was really good with her money. She like, if she got a thousand dollars, she'd be like, Oh, I don't have anything to do with it. She wouldn't spend it. She would just toss it in the bank. So sounds seeing, like you needed that in your life. Exactly. Seeing, seeing Sarah be so well managed with her money and seeing her so well put together, you know, she took care of herself. She was really into fitness. She worked out. She's a travel nurse. She had, you know, bachelor's degree, just this well-developed young woman. It made me want to be, I said, I really want to be with this girl, but right now I'm, I'm garbage. Like, what do I have? Nothing. I'm broke. I'm not really motivated and dedicated, but at the time I was, I was going to the gym, you know, but that was about it. Didn't really teach myself. You know, I had the physical part, but I lacked the mental part. And in Sobeach, Beach, California, that's that's where my life completely changed. Not not to drive this as an insult, but it's going to sound like it's an insult. You needed somebody in your life who gave you maturity. It sounds exactly. like yep yep because I, I you know I was coming off the single life. I was partying, drinking, spending my money, just being ignorant and and immature with the way I handled myself. And and being with Sarah, yeah, it, it kicked me in the rear end. I mean, not just because I wanted to be better, but because she made me better. She'd be like, get off your ass and go in there and do, do something. So was she, a, was she a catalyst or a motivator for you to start she doing a, more on YouTube? Yes. That was the original question. That, that's how I'm getting to it. Yeah, she was definitely well, it was, a motivator. you know, she three was, hours ago, so I forgot what the original yeah, question know, was. Right? So she was the reason. Yeah. Um, when I had first met her, I showed her that deployment video. She's like, she was just completely dumbfounded. She's like, you made that? That's so good. Like, she was just completely in disbelief. She didn't know I was in debt at the time. I was not going to tell her that because I thought she would. Does she me. know now? She, she, yeah, she knows okay. now. I've talked about this freely. Because we could edit it out of the podcast if you need to. No, 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 no. You are good. We're good. <laughs> you can keep 100% of this. Um, and I was on nights. She was on days. So she would be sleeping. When I was off of work, I would be in there on the computer researching. How do I do this? How do I make more of an income? How do I become better? Taught myself about finances, APRs, interest rates, cash flow, passive income, active income, like all the everything. Re- started reading books and I just kicked into overdrive. And 3 months later I had established my own LLC for social media marketing. I'd taken a course, learned the ins and outs of social media marketing and I was going door to door trying to sell these services to people and before you know before you knew it, I had landed a huge real estate firm. I was in their office having a meeting with them, selling them a $10,000 per month package that I was going to provide for them. So doing that, all of their social do, media, doing the social media, running traffic from Facebook and Instagram ads, Snapchat ads onto a landing page and collecting hot leads for their real estate, purchasing real estate. And before, you know, three months, that's why I said, that's why I don't like college now because you have to learn at their pace. If you are motivated and you want to learn at your own pace, you're, you're going to teach yourself something overnight. You know, you, you can teach yourself a skill in a month if you wanted. And in college, 
for me, and I've found that out now, is I was learning so slow and I just wasn't caring about the topic. I was not motivated to learn. It was like pulling teeth every time I went to college. But when I was motivated to learn about something, I taught myself all this stuff in a matter of three months. I went from not knowing anything about digital marketing or marketing or finances, anything. I had taken three months, established my own LLC, did it all myself, filed the paperwork with um, Secretary of State California, learned about accounting, bookkeeping, all this stuff. Do you still have that company today? Yes. And that's what I'm, this is the good part. Every part's been good so far. Thank I mean, you very much. Be better. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, it gets better because so far the story has been kind of depressing. You know, I almost <laughs> lost my leg. I was in a lot of debt, but now this is where we're almost at the climax, you know? So, um, I feel like I'm on a roller coaster. Good. <laughs> um, well, here's another low part. I walked in there. There were like seven or eight big people from Coldwell Banker Long Beach and they just started grilling me with questions. They said, have you tried to sell these services to anybody else? I said, nope. They said, would you? And I was like, well, you know, if some, another real estate agent firm uh, came, came by, I would probably sell them another package. And they said, okay, see you later. I walked out. I, I, wasn't the, I wasn't the greatest at meetings and pitching, pitching yet, because I was selling a service, you know. So did they want to hear that you were only going to work for them? Yes, yeah. And after that, I went into depressed mode again. I said, all right, back to square one. What am I going to do? Keep in mind, I had this video up on YouTube. It was, it was performing kind of well. You know, I wasn't really monitoring every day, but it was kind of, you know, getting views. I, I enjoyed, I didn't check in on it for like six or seven months, but I enjoyed uh, reading the comments when I did catch up to it and whatnot. So I finally landed a client. It was um, a rehab client. I was running his Facebook ads and I had, you know, made five or $600 additional additional per month that I could put towards this credit. So it gave me a little bit of momentum and it was a bad experience with him as well because we weren't able to get him leads. Facebook kicked us off the program because you're not supposed to sell to people that need rehabilitation from alcohol. And so kicked me off bad experience with him said, man, I don't want to do this anymore. <coughs> so I started looking to the stock market, taught myself about stocks, options, everything. I started trading here and there, penny stocks, whatever. And that was, I was thinking, well, I need to be earning money. I don't need to be risking it. So just a little step backwards. So you've yes. started an LLC doing yep. social media advertising. Yes. How many years are you into the military at this point? Four, four. Yep. Does the potential of having to be deployed and away from your business have an impact on how much effort you're putting into that business? No, because for the next three years, I knew I was going to be in Seal Beach, California. I was on shore duty. Okay. There was no potential of me deploying. So I knew I was locked in. And that, that gave me the confidence and the, and the factor, driving factor to say, okay, I got three years. I'm going to make something out of myself, you know. <clears throat> and keep in mind, I wasn't really interested in social media marketing for other people. It was just something that I thought I, I could help increase my revenue. But what I was truly interested in was the video. I did it for free in high school. I loved every minute of it. I wasn't getting paid a dime from YouTube, but I was still, I still uploaded that video because I was, I wanted to share it with people. So Sarah, I was, one night I was sitting in there. I think she had woken up to drink water because she drinks like six gallons of water a day. She, she woke up to drink water. She's like, what are you doing? I was sitting there. I was thinking, I was thinking, I was writing thoughts down. She's like, you know what you need to be doing? You need to be going in there and you need to make a, a YouTube video. You like making videos, upload them, share them to share them with people. And I said, you know, you're right. So I immediately went in there 
and I recorded a video. I didn't know what I was going to talk about. I just started, I just started blabbing. I ended up cutting a part of the video and titling it, should you join the military? <clears throat> and I posted it. And at the time I realized I almost had a thousand subscribers on, on the YouTube platform. Just from the first from, single video. Yeah, from the, from the uh, video. Cause it was at, I think at about 200,000 views at the time. And <clears throat> I think I had posted some more like, intermittently like maybe one seven months later another one like a month later another one but on august 18th 2018 i started posting to youtube consistently i started formulating my ideas and making videos about everything and that year i i think between october to midway through december i made 40 videos in 40 days i was became obsessed with it but you're always focusing on an aspect of being in the military correct yes always yeah and well, I would throw some fitness things in there that I would just uploaded what I want when I wanted. You know, if it was about eating, if it was about drinking tea, I would do that. It weren't the most, the best videos, but I enjoy the editing process, the color grading, the text, the fonts, the musics. And it was a good time. I was having a lot of fun with it. And by the end of 2018, I had gotten a request from Google AdSense. They're like, hey, you can start to get paid from YouTube now. Do you want to get paid? I said, sure. They said, okay, here's your first check. And they sent me a check, $32. Rolling. I know. I was like, man, I was like, you can get paid from YouTube? Like, I didn't know a whole lot about YouTube. I would just know how to click upload. Arby's was on you. I know, right? (laughs) $32. I could have gotten about, what, 50 sandwiches. And um, so I just kept creating the videos. And I started talking to other YouTubers. Like, there was Donnie Klein and Nikki MGTV. He's like, if you want to, you know, do this, do that to optimize your video. It was just slow process of, op- of optimizing. And in April 2019, less than a year later, it was about uh, it was about eight months later, I had uploaded a video and I, I thought before I produced it, I said, let's combine my interest with fitness with military. And I had Miss Bikini Olympia, which was, her name was Ashley. She was a friend of mine. And I said, hey, co- let's uh, do the Navy physical readiness test. I created it. I edited it. Great production. I posted it to YouTube and it was just like another video for two weeks, just like another video. And I had a habit of waking up and checking my analytics. That's how in, in tune with YouTube I was. I was completely obsessed with it after, you know, 70 videos in a a short amount of time. I'd posted 70 videos before that morning I woke up and Miss Bikini Olympia video had went viral. I think it got like two or 3 million views overnight. And I had news people reaching out to me right this minute news, NBC, LA, muscle and fitness, men's health, women's health. <clears throat> you had business insider was reaching out and it just, after 70 videos, I had my first big banger and all of my analytics on my channel were straight up in the air, including the earnings. And I was like, wait a minute. I said, I just earned $200 overnight from this one video. And I was like, that's great. I said, if I can do that every, every day. Earn oh, two. you're setting yourself for a trap though. Cause I mean, you're never going to get that same result every single time. I, I mean that facetiously. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. But with a catalog of videos, it's like a jump, you know, that bottom that bottoms out on YouTube becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And somebody commented, they said, Hey man, you don't have any ads in this video need to enable some mid-roll ads and some skippable video ads and everything. 
I was just enabling banner ads. There are five types of, of ads on YouTube. So that $200 was coming from one type of ad. So I got on there. I researched more about how to make more money on YouTube. I enabled all of those ads. And for the next day, I think I was, I had three or $4,000 day just from that one video. And I was like thinking, man, this is crazy. Maybe there is a potential that I can start to do this more and optimize the video and really start uh, having a production team, you know, or, or like an editing team and just building and building. And so I took concepts from that video. I applied them to my next video, CrossFitters. Well, I, I think it was U.S. Marine attempts the Navy physical rance test. Just kind of emulating the video, but somewhat duplicating it, but making it different. So I posted that video and that video took off as well. And I had all my ads set and video hit a million views. I think I earned three or $4,000 from it. I said, well, this is great. I was still dropping kind of, they call it hub content or vlog content where I'd be like, I went to Walmart and I'm drinking a tea. And then there were these hero banger videos that were earning, you know, two, three, four K a piece. And that was in 2019. I think, yep. By the midway through 2019, I had paid off every single bit of that, that $20,000 debt. Very good. It was a, such a happy moment for me. I still have the screenshot, such a happy moment for me. It felt like this depressing cloud had been lifted over, lifted off of me. And it all came from doing what I like to do because after 70 videos, it took me 70 videos to get that, that hit. And if I didn't like video, if I didn't have an interest in it, I would have quit after five. Leading up to those 70 videos, what were your analytics like prior to that? Kind of like this, you know, um, I was growing because a lot more people will subscribe than unsubscribe. People rarely unsubscribe unless they really hate what you say in a video, but I was just having fun with it. You know, I was making a day in my life, you know, as a bodybuilder or because at the time I was competing for a body, uh, prepping for a bodybuilding show, just what I eat in a day, best ab exercises, um, military boots, just topics that I can think about. And it's impossible to think of extremely quality content when you're, when you're rolling them out that soon. So some videos would do decent, some videos wouldn't. And then it was just kind of like this. And it wasn't until that, that one video, Miss Bikini Olympia video brought eyes to my channel. A lot more videos started, started boosting and, uh, began to build that revenue roller coaster, you know, and, and throughout 2019, the bottoms got even higher, you know, even as the revenue kind of bottomed out, I was still earning two, $300 a day. If somebody's <laughs> thinking about going this route, they haven't done it yet, or maybe they've got, you know, one or two videos yeah. up. It sounds like though you want to make sure, or you want to focus on topics that have an interest to you and that you have a passion for, as opposed yes. to trying to mimic what everybody else is doing. Correct. For sure. There are a lot of YouTubers that mimic each other and, and a lot of them do well doing that. But if you're, if I'm sitting here and I'm talking about shoes, I'm not a shoe guy. Like I just, I don't have an interest in shoes, but if I'm making a YouTube channel about shoes, cause I think it's going to earn me money. I'm going to be dead inside doing it. So you really have to do something that, ins that just gets you going. People feed off of your energy in every video. So if I'm, I'm excited about fitness, I love fitness. It changed my life. So when I'm in front of the camera and I'm working out, I'm like, 
We're going to work out today. We're going to inspire. We're going to motivate. And we're going to get this accomplished in front of your eyes, ladies and gentlemen. So stay tuned. Check it out. Like it's, yeah. How rewarding was it to get those random comments that you were actually motivating people? That's the biggest thing that kept, that kept pushing me forward. I, I said, these people like the content. I'm going to keep pushing it out. I'm just going to be myself. I'm gonna, that was before the Miss Bikini Olympia video, you know. When I made that video, I was getting so many more like, I live in Spain. I got out and I ran two miles this morning because I watched this video last night. It was just a, like a worldwide thing. I was getting so many comments and it felt great knowing that I could have a profound effect on somebody in somebody's life, especially if I was just getting them into the fitness realm. I knew how it helped me in the past. I knew how, how um, it made me feel and I wanted to make others feel like that too. Now, I know you said that you're, we're coming out of the bad parts, but there's actually some negative from this in the sense that it had an impact on your military career, <laughs> not in a necessarily in a, the, not in a completely negative, but it had a negative impact <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's taking times taking time away from uh, collaterals that I could potentially be having, you know, but at the time, you know, in 20, 19 halfway through 2020 I didn't see myself well I saw myself I didn't see myself staying in I was kind of on the fence I was like oh I could stay in or I could get out whatever um but yeah it started to I, I made videos that were very high gravity um I was in you know just like I was a, a trainer in the Navy I was a command fitness leader CFL so I would apply that to the athletes um since I was doing it in a, a non-military capacity that's where there was some sticky area. Um, my chain of command feared that I, the Navy could get sued if somebody like had a heart attack or whatever. And it, it wasn't like I was putting them through a four mile Hudson Bay swim. They were just doing some push ups. You know, they were just doing mile and a half run. They were just doing 15 sit ups. And I didn't see like, cause everybody I surrounded myself with were my friends, like, you know, Miss Bikini Olympia, U.S. Marine, you know, I had made all these friends in different branches of service and we were just out, out having fun. And. But from the Navy's perspective, they were thinking about strictly from the liability aspect. Yes. Liability. And they feared that people think would think I was speaking from the military standpoint, uh, speaking for the military, for the Navy. And. I was real professional and what I, it wasn't like I was going and doing drugs uh, in my off time or just drinking and getting drunk. I was very well put together, like pretty much how I was, you know, I was, I was disciplined in fitness. I was, my, my mental game was right. I was, had a clear head and I was just trying to portray it to other people and athletes in the videos. And where it got sticky was, uh, you, you're earning revenue and I had sponsored videos on my channel, not in uniform. And NCIS, somebody had called and reported that I was earning money off the military uniform. And they dug into it. They did some research, blah, blah, blah. And they said, you can't. They said, we're just seeing if it's allowed that you're earning money from brands on your YouTube channel with the uniform in different YouTube videos. Because to me, for me, I was told that keep all brands out of stuff that you have military gear in, which I did. But on the other part, I was, I had like a sponsored video with like uh, random companies that would um, sponsor a video. And 
But was the military making a connection from that video back to a, a different video that you happened to be in? They were trying uniform? to. They were trying to. Yeah, yeah. And for me, the social media <coughs> ethics and handbook, I was in, in the clear zone. But then they kind of drew back and they said, wait, 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 we don't know if you're in the clear zone. Let's NCIS inspect this. So for two weeks, I was under investigation for NCIS. And I guess what they were going to do is try to take money back from me that I had earned on YouTube. I don't, I don't really know. But I wasn't really worried about it. It's not like I was spending the money. I was so scared of money at the time. I just knew I'd paid off the debt and that's it. And the rest of the money was just sitting there. I wasn't going out. I wasn't buying clothes, Lamborghinis, all this other kind of stuff. Um, but so I wasn't that nervous about it. I even made a video while I was in investigation, while I was investigated by the Navy. I think it was a little af after the investigation. But what had happened was Chinfo, chief of information, he's over all head of content that rolls out for the Navy, America's Navy, All Hands Magazine, and at U.S. Navy. Admiral Charlie Brown, great guy, really, really nice man. He came to Seal Beach, and my chain of command told me, like, hey, you know, you have a post inspection by the Admiral. You can be taking him underway, you can be driving, you can be coxswain. And I was saying, oh, shoot, Okay. <laughs> Because you had to be on your P's and Q's. You had to know your post briefs. You had to know everything. And so the Admiral shows up, and we're all in ranks, you know, salute, you know, greeting him and whatnot. He said, hey, thanks, everybody. I'm just here to see MA2 Alexander. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm going to get kicked out of the Navy. He's going to roast me. He said front and center. So I went up there. He, uh, he shook my hand. He said, MA2, I just want to say I absolutely love your videos. They're one of the most inspiring, motivating. He said, I, I even watch all your all the fitness stuff. It's great. He said, and the way you're portraying the Navy is in a positive light. He said, it's a great thing. He said, I think it's good for recruiting. I think it's good for you. I think it's good for the whole Navy. And he gave me the Admiral Challenge coin. And he kind of he um, said, I just appreciate it. And keep, keep, keep it up. Keep rolling out the videos. And when he left, an hour later, the LT that was investigating for me, me from NCIS, he said, hey, um, in, uh, investigation's off, you're good. And we just, you know, had to pause some things and whatnot. So it took the admiral to s tell NCIS to calm down and said everything was okay with my, my content. At any point in time, though, did you feel like you weren't getting support from the military to keep doing what you were doing? Well, it wasn't their job to support me at all. It was, it was my own thing. I was doing it my own time. You know, I was every time I filmed, I would either be off or it would be on a weekend or it would be 30 minutes before I clocked into work. Sometimes I would use the whiteboard at, at work and it wasn't their it wasn't their job to support me at all. This was an, an, an independent venture that I was going on. I just saw a gap between military and the civilian side, and I kind of provided an inside look through my videos. And that's why people people like to watch them when you started getting more popular, did you ever feel like the Navy was trying to exploit you and what you had done through your own work for their benefit? Towards the end, yeah, there were a few master chiefs that were asking me, hey, would you do this? Would you do that? Would you post on your social medias about recruiting? Would you, all this, all this stuff. And I did a few times, you know, I did some interviews with uh, Navy SEAL in space, captain, did a few interviews, uh, did a Reddit post, you know, so I was, I was helping them out a little, you know, I, I would work with them. It's not like I was saying Navy stay away from me, but then making Navy content. So we would mesh, you know, together. And for a long time, they wanted me to re-rate as an MC 
and and be a spokesperson and and do like a series with the Navy on YouTube for to help recruiting purposes. But I didn't want to do that because I knew that a video that I created would get cut down and and not approved and and it would go into this jumble of what I produced not being what was released. And I did not I didn't want any part in that. So ultimately, you never wanted to give up control of what you were creating. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because I was in charge of the approval process. I just knew things that I couldn't do or say on behalf of the Navy. And I just knew, I knew all that. So, I mean, I could shoot an edit, a video, edit it the next day and have it out the next morning without any approval beside my own. If you had wanted to stay in, would it have been possible for you to balance your military career and continue to grow on YouTube? Do you think? I think so. Yeah, it would have. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't be able to produce as often because back then I was uploading two, three times a week, you know, maybe like, and, and the videos were, they were very mediocre. It wasn't until like maybe once a month or once every three months that I would drop a, a banger challenge video, you know, <clears throat> and, and now I'm able to do that pretty frequently. I can, I can shoot once a week and, and roll a video out three or four times a month. So it's not necessarily the content that per se would be an issue. It's just the available, the amount of free time exactly. that you would have to dedicate to grow your business. Exactly. And back then, you know, the, the Navy always came first. If they called me in for something, I would ultimately do that. But the YouTube stuff, it, it cut into my sleep a lot, which was expected. But I mean, I would get it done by any means. That's why I have these bags under my eyes. I know you guys are probably like, what are those bags? It's from not sleeping for seven years in the Navy <laughs> or for five years, you know? So for somebody who is active and they're yes. thinking about going down this path, what are, you know, what are your top five tips for becoming a, whether you be want to re refer to it as a social media creator or just a YouTuber, but you know, what would be your top five tips? I prefer the term digital content creator. Okay. Cause when folks hear social media creator or YouTuber, they think I'm going out there and throwing Orbeez on my friends. I'm not doing that. I make it inspiring, motivational fitness content. So <laughs> digital media creator is, is what I like, but Number one, and 10, 15, 20 people this year alone have reached out to me. They say, I want to make a YouTube channel. How can I do that? They see the end result. They don't see all the hard work. They don't see meeting up with people, scheduling, budgeting. They don't see all of that for the, for the big videos. If you have a general interest in video <clears throat> and you want to put yourself out there, then I'd say start to think about it. Number two. If you know you have the drive and the determination and you're not lazy like 90% of people are, then proceed with it. And remember, every single video or every single piece of content is a new journey in social media. You could drop 100 videos that flunk. You could have one that does well, and it'll show you what people want to see from you. So the biggest factor is, is consistency. I know you hear that a lot and it sounds cliche, but standardizing and then optimizing standardize first, be sure you, you can provide the consistency and then from there optimize. So at the same time you're, you're producing, you're constantly optimizing your videos and specifically on YouTube, there's a lot to learn. I have two or three strategy sessions a week that are an hour long, just talking about ABD, CTR, watch time, everything. Um, <clears throat> be ready for that. Cause if, if you want to take on the YouTube world, you have to constantly be optimizing or your channel will die. At in, or you have a management team, correct? 
Yes. Did you create that or did you have a mentor who kind of guided you towards a management team once you got to a certain level? I, so with brand deals, when I got out of the Navy or when I was still in the Navy, I had a company come to me and say, Hey, this brand Squarespace would like to work with you. And I said, okay, so uh, you accept a rate, you produce a video and you have the sponsored integration in it. So you bet, oh, this episode is sponsored by Febreze. Get Febreze era, any Walmart locally, $3.27, blah, blah, blah. Click the link in the description, whatever. And Febreze is not a sponsor for this podcast. Yeah, Febreze is, <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't have said that. But um, yeah, so there was an agency, a few different agencies that would bring me these deals and they would take 20% off the top and whatnot. But I had heard about this uh, agency called Night Media. They manage the biggest creators in the world. Mr. Beast, CHC, um, they have a lot of really big creators and they were really keen with the back end of YouTube and, and they have a network of people who are invincible in the media space. And I was not signed with anybody at all. And my friend, Mike DeMazzo, great guy, he's in Japan, still deployed. I'm not sure what squadron, but he <coughs> said, he contacted Michael at Night Media. Michael Gordon had just started at Night Media and he, he was good friends with Michael. He said, hey, I have a creator. You know, he's a military and fitness creator. He, he does military stuff, military tests, fitness tests, extreme challenges. He said, you guys need to chat. So Michael called me up one day. He's like, hey, your content is trash. You could, you could improve the AVD, the CTR. And back then I didn't really think about it a whole lot. But he said, uh, yeah, I like, you know, you got two videos on the channel. I really, really like and they're great, but you, you could do a lot better. And so I was like, well, who is this guy? Just kind of, we had kind of like a, not the great, not a great conversation. <clears throat> but you got to understand he's seeing the top of the top every day of the week. Exactly. And that's why I, that's exactly why I love it because now I compare myself to a pe people that are a lot bigger than me and not people in my same industry. And so I got to thinking about it. He said, if you wanted, you could take this, these challenge videos full time. You could be doing this full time and, and it would be a great production. You can inspire a lot of people. You just have to focus on the algorithm and, and how to get better every video. And, you know, my YouTube channel with my baby, I didn't like, I didn't like people telling me how, how to do my videos. And I, I, I just didn't like it at the time. And two weeks later, <clears throat> I called him up. I said, Hey, I'd like to chat some more about, about what you're saying. He said, let me get you on a call with Reed, which is, uh, Jimmy's Mr. Beast's manager, the, the biggest YouTuber in the entire world. Well, I say that I think there's, you know, he gets the most views per video every, every than every, any YouTube video or YouTube YouTuber ever. Great creator, really good creator, really, really creative. <clears throat> and we got on a call. He said, this is how, you know, you can help us. This is how we can help you, blah, blah, blah. And so that's when I signed with that meeting. I signed with that meeting in August of 2020, two years later after I, after I, launched my YouTube channel full-time. I signed with Night Media. Again, going back to our previous comments about Sarah coming into your life and bringing that maturity. If you are serious about this and you're not just somebody walking around with a, you know, your iPhone recording your daily life and you really want to make a business out of it, being open to having a mentor, being open to the criticism in what you've already produced yeah. is the only, in my opinion, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, the only way you're going to grow. For sure. Yeah. It's the same way in any, any business. Every single business owner had a mentor or has a mentor now. Even Jeff Bezos. 
So at what point would you recommend if somebody does want to start going down this path, obviously, like you said, consistency, start mm-hmm. producing content. But at what point do, would you recommend getting a, an actual ASAP. mentor? ASAP. ASAP. As soon as you can. I was ignorant to it the first two years. I said, I can make a viral video. I know how to make a great video. I can do it. But there are people that can potentially be in your corner that you can talk to that are going to be honest with you and say, this video is great. This video is shitty. As soon as you can. And this goes for anything in life. Get a mentor as soon as you can. If, if you just need a mentor to, to, to have a conversation with you at, you know, six in the morning or whenever they wake up, you know, if you want to be like somebody, if you want to be a certain way, you need to find somebody that's what you want to be like and talk to them as much as you can. Ask them to be your mentor, be direct about it. And kind of wrapping it up, the videos, or you've only got one episode, I believe right now, where you went to Pennsylvania State Troopers. I'm editing the, the, uh, that's what I'm about to do here very shortly. Where, how did that come about? I was at the swim, the Hudson, Hudson River swim, and just uh, amongst uh, really elite guys, great swimmers. This one guy came up to me, he said, hey man, I love your YouTube videos. And a lot of them did, surprisingly. And I said, oh, thank you very much. He said, let me know if you want to come to Pennsylvania State Trooper Academy and, and, and uh, make a video about it. I said, when can I do it? So they knew who you were. Yes. Yeah. And they came up to me at the swim. Clint, really, really good guy. He's like 6'4". He's a really tall guy. I'm 6'3", but I feel like 6'4 is just massive. <laughs> um, so he came up to me. He said, all right, we'll make it happen. Give me your phone number. I'll, I'll reach out to you in a week. And he said, you reach out to me in a week with the exact itinerary, what we're going to do. You're going to get tased. You're going to go driving a uh, training course. You need a horse detail. You're going to do kennel, kennel. You're going to do PT, all this stuff. And he said, we can even provide our media crew to help you capture it. <clears throat> I said, okay. So I flew out there and we got it done. What's the future for Austin Alexander in your, your digital media creation? Future is the battle bunker. We're going to build the best online competition series there is. I don't care about Spartan, Spartan games, CrossFit games. The Battle Bunker is going to be it. We just need time to build it. We've got you know, a few episodes. I have some land out here in Moore Park shortly moving to, to uh, Texas. Um, strictly because it's a lot cheaper. We can get more for your money out there. And we need to, obviously we have a budget because I'm, I'm producing two productions for my YouTube channel on the income of one. So this year has been a struggle. We've done well in the, in the media and the views aspect, but now I'm trying to juggle the, these two productions. So the battle bunker and Austin Alexander for the future for Austin Alexander. I feel like I'll still be doing the challenges. I love doing those and I love producing documentary style, like gorilla gorilla style shooting. But for the battle bunker, it's going to be a competition series. It's going to inspire and motivate people. So Instead of just me, instead of people just relying on me, the Battle Bunker is going to be a community of individuals who are driven, that work hard, and inspire people every day. So the Battle Bunker will be competition amongst multiple competitors? Yes, yes. As opposed to the head-to-head type competitions? Well, head-to-head is, is what we're starting out on because logistically you have to double the effort for four competitors. You have to triple the effort for six competitors. You have to quadruple, and the effort is already a lot on our plate now, getting two people together on the same day at the same time is really hard. And then you multiply that by four, six, eight, whatever. It gets even more difficult. Exactly. And 
you're not only dealing with the competitor aspect, but you're dealing with videographer availability. Thank goodness I have Braxton here because we can pretty much shoot whenever we want now. Um, usually we have an additional videographer, but yeah, that's what we're, that's what we're dealing with. And I'm, I'm still juggling it and producing for my YouTube channel and, and working with brands and, and, uh, we're going to start pitching the battle bunker on a sponsor. I think early next year, which is going to be huge. It's going to give us the capital to make some really great episodes. And now the production quality is, is high enough that we can handle the production on the back end. Cause I do have an editing team when I need them, but uh, every episode costs us at least about $1,500 to produce. So if we're doing four episodes uh, a month, you know, that's six, seven, at least six, $7,000 that goes to production for the battle bunker. So yeah, we're the reason we're pitching a sponsor because I don't want to give up equity in the battle bunker uh, yet. I don't want to have anybody else manage the hearsay of how the videos are represented or produced. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a route we're taking early 2022. Well, I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you very much. I know your time is valuable and I know you're extremely busy. So I thank you for, well, you're just bored of talking to me. I get well, it. You can be honest. No, actually <laughs> Sarah's burning holes in my neck wanting yeah, to get her workout I done. Know. Sarah's, uh, if you guys can't see, we're in the winter garage. I know the backdrop looks like we're in Hollywood, but uh, we're in Simi Well, it's Valley. a garage in Hollywood. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Simi Valley. Yeah. And Sarah's little workout spot is over there. So Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Just any, any last parting words, somebody who's active military, who's thinking about social media, but balancing both of them. Yes. Clearly define what you can and can't do, what you can and can't post, because if you're filming the wrong thing, if you produce something that you're not supposed to produce and you release it, then you could potentially be giving the enemy information or you can get kicked out really quick. So if you're writing the lines of making military content, a guy who does it well, Sam Eckholm, if you want to look him up, look at his current stuff. He does stuff in uniform all the time. He's like on base, like looking at a tank or something like that. He does it well. He doesn't earn revenue from it, but he does well. So I recommend watching that channel if you want any current advice or guidance and, or reach out to him um, if you're doing that because it, it can get very sticky. It can, it can be a lot of gray areas that you don't exactly know if you can or can't produce there. So just be careful. A lot of the regulations are changing and those gray areas are now red areas. So just be current with the social media ethics and you'll, you'll be okay. I appreciate it. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Paul. Thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com, and through the contact tab, Send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.